Hi, this is W. Bruce Cameron. Uh, you can call me Bruce. Uh, you are listening to Drinks with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host. All right, let me do that again. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have W. Bruce Cameron. He's the author of, oh, great, my writing and my eyes. Okay. Take four. <laughs> as long as you say that, that your name is Tony Duchesne and you're listening, to, you want to do my intro for me? All right. Can you read my writing? <laughs> Hi, my name is Tony Duchesne. Uh, I have writing, handwriting that is so execrable that no one can read it, including Tony Duchesne. So I have had to take over for him to introduce myself. W. Bruce Cameron. I'm an author, a screenwriter, a movie producer. I'm fabulously wealthy and good-looking. Uh, my latest book is A Dog's Promise, which is the third one, third book in the A Dog's Purpose series. And uh, I have produced movies including A Dog's Way Home, A Dog's Purpose, Muffin Top, A Love Story, and Cook Off. And with no further ado, here's Tony DeShane. Oh, thank you, everybody. Thanks, thanks for coming on the show. That was really good. Um, you, you have a. You have, did you ever do voiceover acting or radio? Because that that was tight. I actually have been told many times that I have a face for radio. Yes. <laughs> no, you're very good looking, and that's why I put fabulously good looking in the notes that you were. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what that says. <laughs> um, so, the. Here's something I was thinking about before we chatted, and I was in line getting a cup of coffee earlier, and and there was a dog, and a guy I would never talk to in my life, but I started petting his dog, and thinking about your books and your storytelling, dogs bring us together in the weirdest ways that I would never talk to a human, and I think that's partly my fault. So, yeah, what is it that drew you to the narrative of dogs? I, see, see how, see how I, I really went around on that. You thought my, you thought my handwriting was bad. Listen to my thoughts. <laughs> um, on the advice of my attorney, I refused to answer that question. No, I, what I would say is uh, that yes, it's your fault, Tony, that <laughs> dogs bring people together. It, it, is it okay? That's what you said. That's what that's what you're claiming. I'm just affirming uh, this bizarre narcissistic sense that you are responsible for all the canine human relationships on the planet. Oh no, I asked if it was my fault for me personally. For for my pers- for my personal um, for my personal social interaction inadequacies. It takes a dog to have me like sometimes interact with people I would never act- interact with. Okay, well that's that's pretty pathetic, but I <laughs> I do agree uh, with the central tenet of your of your question, which is um, uh, that dogs uh, serve to com- help us communicate because they are emotive, because they are nearly always happy to see somebody. They just love people automatically. Uh, other than perhaps reading a book that someone else has written or someone else has read and. Uh, you walk up and, or they walk up to you and they say, hey, do I, I, you like that book? Uh, other than that, there's probably no other conversation starter better than having a canine companion. 
Speaking of books, I mean, I'm a people don't you know I, I don't see a lot of people people will read on their Kindles. I'm not going to approach them and go, hey, what are you doing on that Kindle? But if they have a hardcover book, you know, if they got have a hardbound book, and I look at it and I, you know, especially if it's a friend of mine, I'm like, oh, that's a friend of mine. And people go, like, yeah, yeah, right, whatever. And I'm like, no, no, really, I know. But it's but it does books do bring us together as well. Yeah, uh, and I will often walk up to people who are reading one of my books and really? and offer offer to sign it for them. They are less enthusiastic when I offer to sign their Kindles, and I don't know why. So how often do you see people reading your book? Not often enough, Tony. I wish I'm looking around the room. I don't see a single person uh, reading my any of my books, so we clearly picked a defective meeting place. Right, exactly. And at the same time, there are only 10 people in here. So, you know, if one person in here was reading the book, and that was a span of the statistics of the population of America, you would be selling more than the Bible and the Koran right now. <laughs> well, that's my goal. <laughs> but you but you have walked up to people who have, who are reading your book and said, hi, what is their reaction? What What's a reaction? I, I mean, if I was reading someone's book and the author said, said hi, and you have your photo in the book, so you could... It could be proved right there. But what, what is their reaction? Uh, I went up to a guy one time who was reading a book of mine called The, the Dog Master. And I said, uh, hey, uh, is that a good book? He says, that's yeah, all right. And so then I told him. I wrote it. And he, he leaped up and he said, oh, my God, you are my mother's favorite author. And he ran over and got his mom. And the whole family uh, surrounded me like I was Bruce Springsteen instead of Bruce Cameron. And uh, they all just wanted to talk about my novels. The A Dog's Purpose series uh, has affected a lot of people. And then a lot of people saw the movie A Dog's Way Home, which was also based on my book of the same name. So they, uh, they really want to chat about dogs and what the books have meant to them. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a wonderful thing and uh, to see my book out in the wild, see any of my novels out in the wild, is just, it's just wonderful. So I, I have one book out. So when I go to bookstores, I, I do check. I have to always check. Do you check? Uh, I actually have legions of fans who go into bookstores, and I'm not urging anybody to do this unless you've got nothing better to do right now. And if you do, turn off this podcast and go to a bookstore, find my book, and if it's not on the front table, simply move it, like my sister always does for me. And I have a, I have a whole bunch of friends. Who and fans who will just do this? They'll say, "Oh no, these books need to be on the front table," and they'll move them for me, which is hilarious. I've done that to my friends' books at the library. I'll, I'll, if, if their book is not in proper display, I'll make sure it's in proper display. Just, just it's it's my service to humanity. I do nothing else that's of any virtue at all, but that's one of my virtues. You are a true humanitarian, Tony. <laughs> What what came first for you? Was it uh, was it author screenwriter? What what was what was the first um, impetus to storytelling for you? Uh, what came first is I was a repo man. Uh, I had a whole series of jobs, day jobs, in order to support my writing habit, and I wound up writing nine unpublished novels before I finally sold a book called Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter, and uh, I was hired to write the screenplay. I flew out from Colorado where I was living and I moved into Los Angeles to be with the show and to write the screenplay, which of course ultimately did not get made, but uh, I was out here uh, and decided to stay here for five years. That was in 2002. 
uh, and I'm still here. Uh, so author came first, actually newspaper columnist, then author, and then screenwriter uh, and television writer. I've done, I've done a variety of things now, all in the written word, and I'm so happy to be in this place and not creeping up someone's driveway at 3 a.m. to take their car. Repo Man in Colorado. Where, what part of Colorado? And do you have any? I mean, you must have many stories where there's danger involved. Yeah, to correct the record, I was actually a repo man in Michigan. Um, and uh, the part of Colorado where I lived, uh, I lived in Evergreen, Colorado for a long time. That's where I raised my children. And then I lived in and still own a place in Summit County, which I highly recommend. It's beautiful there. Uh, in Michigan, I was up in the Traverse City area uh, where I was taking people's uh, Camaros. And I, if any of your, any of your uh, listeners are a former uh, customer of mine, it's, it's, it's good to talk to you. And I hope we can let bygones be bygones. But it, um, I, I would feel like there's, I don't know, because I've never been in a repo man, but there's, there's got to be some emotion involved afterwards. Where do you, do you feel like you wish you would have met these people on different circumstances? Um, I actually wrote a book, uh, a novel called The Midnight Plan of the Repo Man and a sequel, uh, Repo Madness. They're, they're humorous mysteries because it occurred to me that I, as I was uh, stealing people's cars that I spent a majority of my time trying to track down people. I was actually like a private detective. And uh, I thought this would make a really good basis for a character in a novel. I will also tell you that of all the books I've written, and I've written a lot of books with dogs on the cover, including the repo books, even though there's, and there is a dog named Jake in the books, but it's not from the Jake's point of view. But of all the books I've written, the most popular uh, among, or I guess popular isn't the right word uh, based on the number of sales, but certainly I get my most fervent uh, reactions from people who have read the Repo series. They love that, uh, and they keep urging me to write novel number three, uh, which I just haven't gotten around to doing yet. So the, um, what, was, what was the culture shock like of just, you, you get the green light on uh, Eight Simple Rules of Dating. I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting that wrong, I'm sure. Um, we called it Eight Simple Rules, and that, uh, that, that eventually became the name of the show. They changed it from Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter to just Eight Simple Rules, starring John Ritter on ABC. Oh, man, and I was so glad that he was on the show again, and it was, it was so tragic. I, I grew up on Three's Company. He was my hero from, like, ever since I was a kid. I was like, you could, you could have two lady roommates? I want to be him when I grew up. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and I will tell you that in person he was absolutely the, a prince. He was an absolute great guy, and uh, the world really suffered a loss when uh, when he left us because he was uh, he's one of the one of the greatest guys, and he was so supportive of my career. And he read the audio version of uh, Eight Simple Rules, which was. Oddly, I mean, he didn't get paid any money for it. He just did it as a favor to me. So I, I mourn his passing. Um, and I wish he could have been around to see what happened when I wrote A Dog's Purpose. And it became a movie. And I wrote A Dog's Journey, the sequel, which became a movie. Uh, I wish he it could have been around for that. He would have been cheering all the way. So coming to Los Angeles, what, what, because you, you, you had a five-year plan of sorts, 
Was, was it a culture shock to come here and just kind of be smash cut into this world? What, what was the what was it like? Because you really hadn't been you have you hadn't lived on the West Coast, right? That, okay. Yeah, uh, there's absolutely no difference between leave, living in a mountain town in Colorado with a population of around 6,000 people and living in Los Angeles. I mean, absolutely not. There's no difference at all. There's 6,000 people in this room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, uh, it was a real cultural shock for me, but in a good way. Uh, I think maybe I had an insular, insular life. Uh, I was living a lot like a dog from one of my books and that I was just sort of focused on what's happening right around me. And I think when you were in Los Angeles, you wind up having to navigate through so many different people and cultures and uh, situations that it really broadens your scope. I think I'm a better writer for having moved out here, especially having uh, met Catherine Michon, who taught me how to write screenplays. Uh, when we, we were writing partners, so we wrote the screenplay together for A Dog's Purpose, A Dog's Journey, and A Dog's Way Home, uh, because uh, she brings uh, a tr- not only a tremendous amount of talent to screenwriting, but she's been doing it for a number of years, and she knows what she's doing. So, so when you came out, it was for the purpose of the film adaptation of the book, and then it, and then it became a series. Is, is that the so it, it was? I, I've been I've been through development hell myself on a very passionate project. So, what was it like when you started to realize? I mean, when did you realize that the film was not going to happen? And then later, the TV came up, and what were like the feelings when just. Because I was just like, oh, we're in. Here it goes. Everything's happening. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, delay, delay, delay. Might not happen. Might not happen. I'm going, what? No, this is my life. Uh, you just described it pretty well. The the, the way it goes is uh, it's absolutely mysterious to someone like me. I was... I was in business, and I was accustomed to people saying uh, their truth and their, stating their intentions, then living up to those intentions. But um, it's been really positive for me. Uh, even when they didn't make the movie, uh, Eight Simple Rules, we co-developed it at the time of the television show. Uh, and for a while, they were going to do something really unusual, which was to make a movie while the TV show was on the air. They were going to have the same cast, and it was good. Yeah, it was going to be so much fun. Um, and then, of course, uh, when John passed away, that was the end of that. But I have sold other uh, television pilots that didn't didn't get made, which is how the business works. I'm not. I am just uh, so happy, though, that I'm out here, and that when I write a book now, like um, we have. Uh, uh, I've got uh, seven books coming up uh, being published in 2020 and all of them are under conversations to be made into uh, filmed entertainment because of the environment in which we find ourselves where there's so much development going on. I've got uh, a dog named Lily who's a new character and I'm doing a chapter book series uh, called Lily to the Rescue and it's about this adorable dog named Lily who is a, uh, a rescue, she gets rescued, and then she winds up living at an animal rescue and helping to rescue other animals. It's a chapter book for kids. It's absolutely adorable, I can't wait. That comes out in March, 
uh, we're publishing four of those next year. And, uh, you know, I've got this Younger Reader series, which is uh, usually based on dogs that are already out there. So uh, my book, A Dog's Promise, has a dog named Cooper, and Cooper's story will be out in the fall. And A Dog's Way Home has a dog named Bella, and Bella's story will be out in, um, in the spring. And I've already written Bella's story. So uh, th- the, the synchronicity, if you will, between writing for film and writing novels has worked perfectly for me, though I just stumbled into it. It wasn't my intent. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just living in the mountains of Colorado and not bathing or shaving or doing anything like that. And then the success fairy came one night and and uh, put took took some hair off my head apparently, and then left me a success under my pillow for me to find the next morning. Was it really that fast? Was it was it, was it really that fast that that you essentially? Uh, were you were you sending your work to agents, or did you have an agent that when you were under submission and it was kind of the tr- it wasn't getting traction, and then all of a sudden traction hit? Yeah, I had a local agent in Denver who got me the column writing gig with the Denver Rocky Mountain News, and then I had a column that I wrote about dating my daughter, dating my teenage daughter. That was just a big hit. It got picked up by wire services. It was all over the world. And she said, this would make a good book. So uh, I wrote a proposal, sold it. Nobody expected anything to happen. And then it, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. So my first published book was a bestseller. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw the TV show. That was a phone call that I got from a guy at random. I was still in the phone book. And it, so like all this, no. This all happened at once. It was my whole life trying to get where I was, my whole adult life. And then one day, now I'm, you know, now I've got the third book. Who would have thought back then that I would be sitting here talking to you about the third book in the Dog's Purpose series? I just, that's just amazing to me. I I love that you're relishing the moments of it because it's really, it could be really easy to get tied up in the business part and the you know the, the gun to the head deadline so i, I want to ask you <clears throat> when when the publishing deal came through how stoked were you on that first book oh <clears throat> other than having my own podcast which would of course be the ideal uh i i thought i, I was just astounded i was just amazed because by then i had told myself that i was never going to be a published author and and that was that so uh, it, it was the, the accomplishment of a lifetime. Uh, actually, the goal that I set for myself as early as high school was to someday have a book, a novel, be number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. And when that happened, when, I, when, it, when A Dog's Purpose became number one, uh, it was the fulfillment of a, of a life's dream, and I was still alive. So I thought uh, things couldn't be any better. How did you find out that you were our number one on the bestseller list? What, what, did you get a call beforehand? Yeah, the way it works is the publishers know well in advance of the, of the newspaper. They, they subscribe to a service. And uh, so I picture that the New York Times bestseller list is like four lonely guys sitting in a basement somewhere throwing darts at a board and they hit me for number one with a dog's purpose and my publisher was elated. I mean, my publisher 
does has had number one best-selling authors before, but not in a while. So it was a it was a real celebration. And, and but how did they? How did your publisher? Did your publisher get in touch with you? Was it a phone call? Was it? In, and it's it's got to be a phone call. If it's an email, I'd be mad at my publisher. It was actually a a phone call from my agent in New York City. Uh, he's at Trident Media, and he. Girlfriends have tried it. <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay, so uh, my agent called me, and he was so excited. I really couldn't understand what he was saying, and it didn't even sound like him because he is such a down-to-earth guy. But he was absolutely giddy, and uh, and and then you know, uh, I have been on that list subsequently, and it's a it's a great place to be. When you're on the list later. Is it still the same juice as the first time, or is it almost even better? How does what was it? What's it like? Or if you don't make the list, is it like they don't understand me now? No, I. I this is going to sound so uh, uh, so supercilious, but I've kind of moved beyond watching that list. Something profound happened to me uh, early last year, early in 2019. I was at an elementary school, and uh, a teacher came up to me and, uh, and said, I've got a couple of children who don't read. They will refuse to read, but I was able to get them to read your books, and now they love reading. And I realized that all my life I thought my purpose as a writer would be to entertain adults. I actually had it in mind that I would write uh, the kind of books that I like to read, which are thrillers, and guys like you, uh, who like to hang out on bars, would read my books <clears throat> when they weren't so intoxicated. And I, I uh, then realized that maybe my purpose is to help children fall in love with reading. And so I care. That was just last year. Because before that, I had these books out, but I didn't really understand the impact they were having because I wasn't going to elementary schools to speak. And now I go to, I've got a book tour coming up where instead of going to all bookstores, I'm mostly going to elementary schools because uh, that's my that's my newfound and most important purpose. And your, and your fan base is not only the children, I'm sure it's the adults too. So they're probably all showing up going, wait, who's going to be at your class today? And it's the book that they've been reading them or I'm sure they want to meet you as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I didn't write A Dog's Purpose, A Dog's Journey, A Dog's Way Home. I didn't write those for children. And I, uh, my book, The Dog Master, is certainly not for children. But I'll say that, uh, on, that I do have young, precocious readers who read them. And uh, it's certainly true that adults have pulled a child into their lap and read them A Dog's Purpose, as an example. And... Uh, and the, and the reception I'm getting right now from adults for A Dog's Promise is full of references to how much their kids are going to enjoy them when they're a little older or how much the kids are enjoying having them read to them. And then I specifically wrote this younger, uh, younger reader series. The most recent one is Lily's Story. And uh, the, the kids are gobbling them, them up. So, yeah, you're exactly right. I'm... Uh, I'm trying to appeal to the entire demographic from grandchildren to grandmothers. 
you have a lot of stuff coming out. You are, I, I feel like you're a, um, you're a machine, a production machine. Do you have, do you have like a schedule? How, how do you stay so disciplined as a writer? Well, <clears throat> you can't see my hands, but they're under the table typing right now. <laughs> I heard the typewriter. I thought it was water dripping. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. So um, it is, uh, it's really difficult, uh, honestly, to, to stay focused the way I need to be because life itself has gotten so distracting. There's email, there's, you know, a million different things going on, uh, puppy videos. I spent a, too much time looking at puppy videos. But aren't they great? Oh, my gosh, there's nothing, there's nothing better. Uh, so... Um, yeah, I would say that uh, I'm not as disciplined as I should be, but I try. Uh, I'll probably do some dictating on the on the drive home. I do a lot of dictating because I have, yeah, my fingers, I have uh, arthritis from all the typing. I've been typing since I was a boy, and uh, it has worn out a couple of my joints. So I have to be really uh, careful that I spend as much time uh, dictating as I do typing. Um, which is which works fine for me. Uh, I just I just get to a place where I can concentrate on what I'm doing. But um, the, I would say to anybody who's out there saying, "Well, how do you how do you come out with seven books in one year?" Well, one of my secrets is that the uh, a, a younger reader book, sorry, a, a chapter book, is only fourteen thousand words. So it's not even even four of them together don't equal one adult novel. Well, that's taking yourself down a little bit there. You know, keep, I keep just just keep saying that I got seven books coming out this year, and I want to interview you for every single one. So you'll so you'll be here seven times, right? Uh, that's certainly a reasonable request. <laughs> You're like, can we just go over all of them right now, please? <laughs> that might be a better way to do it. Uh, uh, okay, so the um. <laughs> I was so enamored with uh, how you were telling me about the process, and uh, I, I lost all thought. And this stays in the show, so every time I screw up and lose thought, it stays in the show. Yeah, the caffeine should be hitting now, Tony. You should be you should be with me. Snap out of it. Snap out of it. Is the caffeine hitting you? Are you on now? Oh, yeah. I'm so excited. I can't stand it. Yeah. I, I'm, well, you look like you got to pee in about a minute. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, that's why I'm excited. <laughs> when you say it that way, I'm going, oh. <laughs> um. Between dictating, because I feel like, especially for me, I, I have to. I write first. My first drafts are handwritten, and then I type them in. Um, I don't think I, I would. I would. It would be very hard for me to shift to dictating. I think. And was it? Was there a shift on how you, the story was told for you, or did you have to kind of get your mind into a different mindset in order to dictate the story? Uh, yeah, I would say anybody contemplating this first, uh, the software is not there. Like, I've tried using the dictation programs when I wrote um, A Dog's Promise, my, my most recent book. I tried doing it with dictation software. And I would say it was like 90% accurate, which sounds great until you realize that's one word out of 10 that it gets wrong, sometimes hilariously so. Uh, so I wind up uh, using um, a, a company called Rev.com. Yeah, they're fantastic. Their accuracy is so much better, yeah. and uh, it's it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. 
No, I do some ghostwriting, and I was I was transcribing, and losing my mind. I, then I found out about Rev.com, and I just dropped that money. And I'm like, oh wow, that's a huge bill. But I'm, but look at the happiness in my face. Look, look how look how calm I am. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, I think what you lose. Uh, I, I wrote a novella that'll be out next uh, Christmas. It's a Christmas novella. It's currently got the, I think, brilliant title of Untitled Christmas Novella. Uh, so That's going to play large, especially in the adaptation. Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> People love that. So, uh, I... Uh, let's talk about losing, losing your, your train of thought. Uh, so, uh, I... When I dictated that, uh, I realized how much better I've gotten at the process of saying something like, open quote, hello, comma, close quote, she said, period. I mean, it just flows uh, like it would if I were typing. The downside is you can't go back and look at what you've written. And so uh, you you have to listen to yourself and you realize how inarticulate uh, you are with so many stutters and uhs and ahs, and that's that's vexing. Luckily, uh, transcribers have been trained to ignore all those pauses and throat clearings and and just go straight with the text, which is brilliant. And you actually say the punctuation. That's uh, that's got to put you in a I, 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 like if we were talking now. Can you like can you answer this question with punctuation? Is it like that fast? Open quote, of course I can, comma, Tony, period, close quote. I shook my head. Open quote, do you think I'm a moron? Question mark, close quote. Um, open quote, no, of course not. You're not a moron. You're on Drinks with Tony and brilliant people come on here, period, close quote. I'm, not, I'm getting this. Yeah, don't, don't quit your day job. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't even my day job. <laughs> how, can I, how can I quit something where I don't make anything? <laughs> There's, there's, but I, there's, there's, there's a, there's a joy that I mean. This is one of the reasons why I do the show, so I can just, I can have a cup of coffee with you and talk with you. I, I, I don't think I, if I would have called you up and said, "Hi, I'm Tony. Hey, you want to hang?" Um, you'd be like, "Who are you? I got stuff to do." <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I have people who would hang with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, look, I got, I got this one guy that I kind of don't like. He needs friends. <laughs> I would send my sister. Why would you send your sister? She needs to meet more men. So I'm like, you're a man. But, but I mean, but I'm a tanking man. So would it be like a situation where um, it's a situation where it would be like I would give her advice on dating, or just so she can have more male friends in her life, or you know, I would just let you decide when when you met her. That's it's the dating game on Drinks and Tony. Yeah, or The Bachelor, you know. Yeah, and I mean, come on, look at me. I'm bachelor material. I mean, this is this is all this is all sexy meat right here. You have bachelor written all over your face. <laughs> um, how old are your kids? Are you kids? Are you, or you know, do you want to talk about that? I live in Hollywood, Tony. I'm not going to tell you how old my children are because people can do math and then they go, "Oh my God, he's too old to hire." So seriously, is that a thing in writing where people would think you're too old to hire? Yeah, uh, only only uh, movie directors get to be old white men and still work in Hollywood. It's pretty much true. Screenwriters, uh, actors, it's it it's 
producers, it's a really, a, it's bad news. Um, this is a very ageist, sexist industry. I don't, I don't want to get too much on the soapbox, but I'll note that my wife is a movie director, and it's not like the phone is ringing, giving her opportunities, whereas we can always take a meeting for a, a project that we're writing together. Um, that's, that's the sexist part. And then the ageist part is like it's really a serious issue for a lot of writers that all of a sudden they find that they're not marketable for no good reason. I mean, it, it's just that uh, it's just that everybody wants, as they say, they want to take a different approach, uh, and that would be put in quotes if we were still dictating. And the different a- approach is, of course, a younger person. I, I, I feel like a lot of writers, like if you're, especially if you're doing sitcom work, they, they want writers who are like you know in stand-up comedy who are who are around and how, you know usually have a little bit more young blood in it. I, I don't know about the drama stuff. I feel like older fellas like ourselves, we've lived a lot of drama where we can excrete more than someone who would say 25 and doesn't have the same experience of like divorce and death and you know all that. Well, I don't, you know, I'm not playing the violins for myself just yet, but there's something that's important. I mean, yes, I refuse to answer the question of how old I am, but um, it's important to note that I control my intellectual property. I wrote A Dog's Promise. We have written the screenplay for A Dog's Promise and turned it in to Amblin, who bought it. Uh, and because if, if someone called me and said, well, good news is that uh, some studio wants to make a movie out of one of your books, but they want someone else to write it, I'd say pass. And uh, right now, uh, A Dog's Promise is so hugely popular. It's... It is the highest reader-rated book I've ever written, uh, and that that's saying something given some of my other, you know, A Dog's Promise uh, beats A Dog's Purpose, which is amazing to me, but it's, it does. So uh, that just means that when Amblin wants to get uh, an adaptation going of A Dog's Promise, they can't call anybody else they can't buy the book from me so i'm in a really good position and and i am probably talking more about other people that are having a problem with ageism in hollywood than i am i am very fortunate i'm very lucky uh i i do work hard but uh a lot of it was just um just being in the right place at the right time when when you're adapting your own work to, to the screenplay, uh, especially on your first one, what was what were some of the things that came up where you're like, "Oh crap, I gotta lose this." I got <laughs> you know. Yeah, my my wife uh, calls it living in Sophie's choice because you just basically are deciding which one of your darlings has got to be sacrificed, and a dog's promise, a perfect example, and it's fresh on my mind because we just wrote the screenplay. Uh, there is a lot uh, in that book. It's got to do with a family that is torn apart, and it's got to do with a father who, who is unable to deal with life circumstances properly. And uh, there's a ton of, of subplot concerning the father. That pretty much had to go when it came to the adaptation. We just didn't have the screen time. The most important thing is it focuses on the life of this angel dog, who has come to help a family deal with a special needs child and how that story progresses and how the dog eventually delivers on a promise made is the only part of the book that we were able to include because 
but it, the book is so rich with other stuff. I really feel like it's uh, it's like my East of Eden. I feel like it's a, a real uh, exciting and thrilling family-oriented story that children and adults can enjoy. And really, it's still tapping the human condition from a from essentially from a dog's point of view. Really seeing the of, you know family dynamics and how things break down. It's yeah. I mean, the secret to writing from a dog's point of view is to understand that they don't understand English, so they're not uh, they're not sitting there uh, thinking, oh, well, that's wrong. You know, he said that incorrectly. They're they're basically though they do have really good hearing. Uh, so they they are kind of like a tape recorder, but the, a tape recorder doesn't understand what's being said um, any more than dictation software understands what's being said. Right, right. So the uh, so that's the secret to writing from a dog's point of view is to understand that they don't understand. They're dogs. I try to write a real dog. So a real dog mostly misinterprets what's going on, uh, does things by accident that turn out to be fortuitous. If, if it's going to be, you know, this Lily to the rescue, this dog Lily, a lot of the things that she does to save animals, she does by accident. She doesn't know that she has saved an animal. Uh, just as a, a, quick, a quick example is uh, the father of the, uh, the central uh, human, whose name is Maggie Rose, the father is a game warden, and they need to relocate some prairie dogs because of a housing development. And in doing so, they had to dig a new prairie dog town. They brought the, ter- uh, the prairie dogs out to the town, and the prairie dogs didn't go in the holes. They're just running around, which is really upsetting because it means they're exposed to predators, and they don't know what they're going to do. Uh, and they try walking, the humans try walking toward the prairie dogs. The prairie dogs don't know what humans are. They don't want to mingle with us, but they don't understand. So they just start running out into the fields, which is exactly the opposite. Uh, so they, they work on corralling the prairie dogs to get them back. And then Lily uh, is so excited to chase these squirrels that she jumps out of Maggie Rose's arms and runs up to the prairie dogs who, upon seeing something they recognize, which is a four-legged predator coming their way at top speed, they dive into the nearest holes, and there you go. Lily to the rescue, even though Lily had no idea that she was helping the humans do what they were trying to accomplish. When it comes to, uh, when it comes to seeing from a dog's point of view and trying to, trying to convey the information that's happening like emotionally uh, that, that you can't really convey... Um, straight up I, I don't know if I'm saying this this correctly so it, it, when we have the narrator um, that doesn't quite understand maybe a family's breaking down or maybe or maybe a, a kid does have special needs the the narrator doesn't fully understand it um, do you, how do you craft that narrative to kind of drop the information in so it is still in the dog's point of view and we and we kind of get it at the same time does that make sense yeah it does make sense and a dog's promise. It's, it's pretty evident that dogs do sense some emotions. They, they understand sadness, uh, happiness, but they wouldn't understand something complex like jealousy or envy. That would make no sense to a dog. And uh, so c- you can convey the emotions mainly by hearing from the people. 
like a stage play. You know, people, when they're on stage, they don't turn to the audience and say, now I'm really angry, but they convey it. And the dogs understand some of that. Some of that they don't get, but we as readers do. But in the end, we should sort of look at this. Uh, the dog and a dog's promise, this angel dog, uh, has such a simple delightful interpretation of everything and look how happy dogs are can't we do that do we have to get so bound up in conflict and uh internal tensions and or can we just sort of live life like the dogs and take joy in in uh, sharing a, a drink in a bar full of people who are not reading my book can we not can we not just sort of live life like the dogs and what's also beautiful about dogs is dogs have conflict, but when they have conflict, it seems like it's resolved really fast, and then they kind of shake it off, walk away. I, I, that's what I've noticed. Yeah, I don't think dogs hold a grudge or take yeah. out restraining orders or anything like right. that. Right. There, and there are some dogs that just don't get along ever yeah. with, with each other, yeah. uh, and yet they'll be perfectly fine with other dogs. There's a lot going on in a dog's mind that we as human beings just cannot understand. In fact, we use metaphors for them to understand them, that are probably incorrect. Things like the alpha male and everything. If you go to a dog park and watch a dog playing, you realize that sometimes one dog is the alpha and sometimes that role seems to shift. And we don't know how or why. We don't know what we're looking at. It's like watching a whale breach and we're like, well, we know it's a beautiful thing to see, but we have no idea why they're doing it. Uh, I just read an article about that and the caffeine is obviously kicking in because I just remember, oh yeah, we don't know why whales breach. I think that's astounding. Maybe I'll write a whale's purpose. (laughs) We started a whole new franchise right here. Um, The hierarchy thing is intriguing because this is something that I'm just always fascinated with, especially in writing is the power dynamics and status, especially on TV writing. Where, where we have to shift the power dynamics and the hierarchy. And it's lovely to look at look at dogs go ahead and shift that hierarchy and, and status. We don't know why it's happening. But I feel like in my writing, I, I'm always kind of working on, okay, this person, this person has high status. How are we going to drop him to low status and bring the, the status up on the, in this scene? And, and those, those are the scenes that I'm totally engaged with is when the power and the hierarchy is like thrown in there. Yeah, again, my dogs, uh, my dogs, Ellie, Bailey, these are all my kids' novels, Lily, Shelby. Uh, my dogs are not really uh, concerned. Like, that's the thing is that we are concerned about status. We are worried. When you're writing your stuff, you're, you're trying to show the reaction of someone who learns that he's no longer the top dog. I don't think dogs care about that, and certainly my dogs don't. Yeah, that's intriguing because there, and also, uh, you know, I'm just learning. I'm throwing thoughts out there because I don't know a lot about this. But th- maybe there's also even a, um, a relief when someone's not the alpha dog anymore. The hierarchy shifts. It's like, oh, okay, cool. Now it's that. Now it's that dog. Yeah, I just think uh, we, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about a dog's promise, a dog's journey, a dog's uh, purpose, and thinking about. The dog's point of view is always focused on his relationship with his boy. That's what he cares about more than anything. It, it takes a very interesting turn in uh, a dog's promise. And anybody who has seen the movies or read the books knows that at the end of a dog's journey, it looks like the series is over. So there's now that there's a third one, I can reveal a little bit, which is that uh, Bailey, Bailey, Bailey is, is sent 
back. And uh, Ethan, of course, has, has died. So it's an entirely different thing, and there's some real surprises in A Dog's Promise that uh, I won't reveal, but I always try to change it up. When I wrote A Dog's Purpose, I, uh, you know, it was about this, boy, this dog who's reborn, lives with a whole bunch of different people, learns lessons to find his way back to and eventually save his original boy. In A Dog's Journey, the dog keeps coming back to one person, his girl, and um, because there's this, because uh, CJ, the the girl in a dog's journey, makes a lot of unfortunate choices in her life and has a lot of challenges and needs a dog, and uh, so uh, Bailey returns over and over again to her. In a dog's promise, I'm just going to tell you that it's a, a, once again it's completely different. Uh, what happens is a whole new take on it because that's what I like to do with my my books. I'm writing the sequel to A Dog's Way Home right now, and it's a completely different take than A Dog's Way Home. How do you feel about cats? Oh, I, you know, I, I love cats. Uh, I had a cat. The, the cat didn't like me at all. Really? Yeah. Uh, the cat peed all over my luggage. I don't know, you know, I don't know what the message was there. I think it was not, I, the message was not, Daddy, I don't want you to leave. I'm peeing on your luggage. I think the, the message was, Daddy, I don't like that you came home, and I'm, this is how I'm going to let you know that. It's funny. I just said that because there's people that are like adamant dog people, people that are adamant cat people. I love them both. I mean, I, I get along with them both. I, I think I can handle a cat better just because I... Not good with responsibility. I could barely handle watering a plant. So, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but for the record, I really like cats. I really like dogs. I like pretty much all animals unless they're bite- actively biting me in the moment. I might not like that. But for the most part, I, I just love animals. You know, I just remembered I was, I was walking down the street and this dude had this pit bull and I was like petting it. And it was really nice. And it was smelling. I mean, smelling. And then, and then it really started smelling into my crotch. And I was just like, okay, okay, nice fella, nice fella. Steps back and barks at me. Well, isn't it nice to know that even at your age, you're still attractive to somebody? (laughs) (laughs) Mike, (laughs) and that's the show. (laughs) I love that. And then I was like thinking, oh, God, dogs can spell cancer. Maybe there's cancer in there. You know, I am really good friends with uh, Dina Severus, who is training dogs to smell cancer. Big part of a dog's journey concerns cancer-smelling dogs. Uh, And I will tell you, it's real. They can detect cancer at stage zero. Uh, It's just a question of how do... I mean, the FDA is probably not going to allow us to deploy dogs. And so they're trying to replicate the results from using machinery. But uh, it's, I, th- I think all dogs can smell it. They just don't know what to do about it. But she trains dogs who smell cancer to react in a certain way. And it's amazing. Dogs are going to save us. And so how would, like, are we to the point where we can get an appointment with a cancer dog and just, you know, like, because if she's training, is there, is there a way, is it like almost like a holistic approach or you just have a friend who has a cancer-smelling dog and go, Hey, I'm going to come over for dinner. Oh, is your cancer-smelling dog there? I just wanted to say hi. Uh, you know, uh, so there's a there's a frivolous answer and a serious answer. Yeah, yeah. The, the frivolous answer is you're out of luck. Yeah. But the the uh, serious answer is that I lean down and and 
blew in the face of her dog to see if he signaled. He did not. That doesn't mean anything, really. Uh, she says that, that her dog has signaled, though, in the past, just interacting with a human being. And she will say, I, I think you need to see an oncologist. Uh, but there, no, there, unfortunately, uh, probably because of legal reasons, there's no way to do this. But if you watch a dog's journey or if you read the book, at least you'll get an understanding for how wonderful this is. And how we, you know, we're, 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 as humans, we're going into space. We're trying to find that. And, but at the same time, we don't know what's going on in the minds of animals. We, you know, we don't know what's really making them tick. A bit, but we have our own definition of it, and it's probably way off. Uh, actually, my my dog Tucker agrees that I know what's going on inside the mind of a dog. He says I do, and uh, he also though claims that he co-wrote my last novel, which is not true. So I, you know, take it for what it's worth. Does he have a lawyer? Uh, he's got an agent who is demanding a twenty percent increase in chicken treats, and yeah. we are still negotiating around that. Yeah, yeah. Those, chick- those chicken treats, they can. A 20% up can really get you. Um, Okay, so I I used to have cats, um, and I used to to talk for them because I knew what they were saying. Um, I don't – do you ever do that with your, like, dogs? Do you you just go ahead and talk for them? No, uh, I am not the official spokesperson for my dog, but uh, obviously I talk for dogs in my novels. Right. And and, uh, and, and then, of course, there's a challenge, which is – Dogs are almost uniformly happy, optimistic creatures. So how do you make a dog have a slightly different character? And it really has to do with the, the human beings that, that interact with the dog. They also, I think all dogs start out at the same place, which is happy, fun, optimistic. And then depending upon how they get treated by their humans, they start to, they start to be crafted. In the novel Ellie's story, it's about a search and rescue dog who gets pretty serious about search and rescue and is much less happy-go-lucky than some, like, Lily, uh, who is such a happy-go-lucky dog and has an entirely different relationship to the world. So uh, that's what I think is going on in the minds of a dog. I'm always wondering. I'm wondering what's going on in the mind of humans. What am I thinking about dogs for? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think... I think if I do manage to set you up with my sister, you're going to be spend a lot of time thinking, what is she thinking? <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm probably too obsessed with, like, do I have a booger? Do I have a booger? You know, in my nose. That, that, that's, that's what I think about when I'm, you know, I, I've been thinking about this this whole conversation. Is there a booger in my nose? And why is he looking at my nose? Well, I'm, I'm sorry that you had to bring it up. I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> Bruce, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, it has been my pleasure, Tony. This is one of the strangest experiences I've ever had. <laughs> Seriously? Well, yeah, but that's okay. Well, I'll, I'll deal with it. W. Bruce Cameron on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, A Dog's Promise. He's also the creator of Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter. Hey, thanks for listening. And if you find yourself in Los Feliz tonight, Wednesday, February 5th, I'm teaching a free creative writing workshop, and that's at the Los Feliz Branch Public Library on Hillhurst at 6 p.m. Essentially, I do a short lecture on character and plot, and then we have a free writing exercise. So if you come on out, bring your pen and paper. And stay tuned for more bookish guests coming your way every Wednesday. 
I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony.